Section three of the Diary of a Dead Officer by Arthur Graham West. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part three Diary. Beginning of New Views. The Last Leave. Notes written on Box Hill Station. On Change. Highgate. Officers and the War. Why Go On. Coming Home to London on Leave. In August 1916, West obtained a few weeks' leave, preparatory to taking a commission. During this time, his beliefs in general, and his attitude to the war in particular, underwent a profound change. The following extracts describe these changes. They contain some of the most moving writing in the whole diary. Beginning of New Views Tuesday, August 8th, 1916 I now find myself disbelieving utterly in Christianity as a religion, or even in Christ as an actual figure. I seem to have lost in softness and become harder, more ferocious in nature, and in appearances certainly by virtue of my moustache. So violently do I react against the conventional religion that once bound me, or, if it did not bind me, at any rate loomed behind me, that I loathe and scorn all emotionalism and religious feeling. When I was at E waiting for a commission to come, I was boarded on two persons with whom and their friends I had several arguments, I in favour of science and abstract truth, and they in favour of emotion, denying advance of knowledge and running down science itself as a work of the devil. Of course, more often I was simply tolerant of all this sort of thing, e.g. among parsons and my family, but sometimes it burned up very fiercely, as when I found J was against me re-Christ, and liked to believe he existed simply because he was a jolly character. It seems to me shameful that a man with his power of mind should be regardless of truth, should hold that the question is one that doesn't matter, whereas I, a far less able mind, have by my nature's law to struggle on after truth with my inferior equipment. He threw cold water on the whole affair, and made me, for the moment, the bitterer. Really, as I see now, the matter is not one of great importance, simply because belief in the efficacy of the figure is the important thing, and the reality of the existence does not longer concern me. The Last Leave Tuesday August 15th, 1916 I had returned to London and X and Z after a week with J and M at Box Hill. Asked if I had seen my name as gazetted in the papers, I said no, I had seen no paper since I went down to Dorking. Cries of, Graham, seen no paper? How can you live? Most people are unable to see beyond the war at all. They cannot even realise that it is not the most important thing in the world, truth and beauty and love being more so. 
How, then, shall they ever understand the truth that the world is an iota of the solar system, the solar system an iota of the universe, and the whole under the mindless rule of primal force? You can see how great a change it was to me, coming away from Box Hill and the free, happy life of J and M and the baby, and A and lovely H on Sundays, to the narrow society of ordinary people, and to a world bounded by the columns of the morning post. I thought when I went down to Box Hill, and I was quite bound to feel so, that I should not be really happy with them. I thought their happy carelessness would annoy me, that I would long for the company of those who had suffered as I had suffered, that the men with iron in their souls would be my only true companions from the war days onwards. I was mistaken. The view was dictated by a self-fostered gloominess, perhaps, a selfishness at finding my own fearful experiences unaccounted of. I was happy to put them by, and fell in love with all the sublime life of reason, art, and joy more than ever. I come back here tonight to find a summons to go to W in D and join up with the X regiment. As usual, the blow has quietened me. It has fallen, and now nothing can happen for a day or two. I can barely convince myself that I am going back to the army, that there is a war on at all. Strong upon me tonight, with M's laugh and J's voice far away, is the now familiar feeling of unreality, of dream existence. What midgets we all are! What brief phantoms in a dream! A dream within a dream! This truly is my life! And how gladly would I end it now! Notes written on Box Hill Station, Saturday, August 19th, 1916 I have just been revisiting J and M. D. M. is there too. I go to W. on Monday. We read Wells's last trump out of Boone on a hill. If the war were to begin tomorrow and were to find me as I am now, I would not join the army and if I had the courage, I would desert now. I have been reading and thinking fundamentally important things this last few months. What right has anybody to demand of me that I should give up my chance of obtaining happiness, the only chance I have, and the only thing worth obtaining here? Because they are foolish enough, not reasonable enough to give their own up, that is no reason why I should abandon mine. I asked no one to form societies to help me exist. I certainly asked no one to start this war. To help on happiness as much as possible, I do not object. But I believe the best way to do it would be to incite people not to form armies or fight, or be absurdly and narrowly patriotic. This feeling must be suppressed, 
broadened out, not encouraged. My feelings and emotional experiences during these days were so strange and intense that I intend to register them as accurately as possible. I had been on leave from G since late in July, and had grown quite into the way of civil life again among my friends, especially after a very delightful week in J's cottage with M and the baby. Hence I was able to view the whole war, the part I had played in it and the part I was destined to play in the future, from a standpoint to which I had never been able to attain since the war began or I enlisted. The thought of returning to the army was, as I have said, so awful that the knowledge that it was perpetually hanging over my head made the days seem dreamlike, merely the prelude to the time when the dream should develop into the intense horror of a nightmare. I read a good deal of liberal literature, met some conscientious objectors, moved much among men not at all occupied in the war, and hence suffered a violent revulsion from my old imagined glories and delights of the army, such as I had had, its companionship, suffering courageously and of noble necessity undergone, to intense hatred of the war spirit and the country generally. Most particularly Bertrand Russell's Justice in Wartime impressed me, especially because his essay on the free man's worship so delighted me as the only quite true and nobly open-minded account of a possible religion. I so loathed the idea of rejoining the army that I determined to desert and hide away somewhere. This was so strong with me on Saturday, August 19th, when, rather against my family's wishes, I went down to Jay for the last time. Never was the desire to desert and to commit suicide so overwhelming. And had it not been that I knew I would pain many people, I would certainly have killed myself that night. I imagined myself getting a knife, putting its point carefully between two ribs, and driving it home with the intensest pleasure and no feeling for the pain. On that evening I stayed up late and read B. Russell's Justice in Wartime, and went to bed so impressed with its force that I determined to stand out openly against re-entering the army. I was full of a quiet, strong belief and almost knowledge that I should not, after all, have to face the trial of entering a new regiment as an officer, and that Waterloo would not see me at 2.10 to go to W. In the morning I was still determined. I didn't go to church when asked to do so, but re-read B. Russell, and made up my mind to announce to the family at lunchtime that I have come to a serious decision, long thought out, and now morally determined on. It will influence me more than you, and yet perhaps you ought to know of it. I am not going to rejoin the army. There is no object, except the gratification of a senseless rivalry, in prolonging the struggle. It is beastly and degrading, 
Why do we go on fighting? I will not go on. I really nearly did say it. Everybody thought me silent and depressed because I was returning to the army. It was not so. However, I said nothing. I walked down to the tram with X and Y and said nothing. And I returned, read Boone to Z, and after much thought wrote to the adjutant of the battalion, telling him I would not rejoin the army, nor accept any form of alternative service, that I would rather be shot than do so, and that I left my name and address with him to act as he pleased. Shortly after midnight I went down to the post with this letter and two more, one to J, one to E, telling them what I had done. I stood opposite the pillar-box for some minutes, wondering whether I would post them, then put them in my pocket and returned home to bed. Next morning my aversion was as great and my determination not to rejoin as strong as ever. This was Monday morning, the day I had telegraphed I would rejoin. I thought I would tell the remainder of the family, Zed and the maids. I didn't. I got furiously into my new uniform and went off after Brecker to cash a cheque and get my hair cut and order a cab. As the barber cut my hair, I determined I would go down and telegraph that I could not come to W, and that explanations were following. I walked to a telegraph office to do so, and bought two penny stamps and walked out again. I cashed a cheque for ten pounds, saying in excuse that it might help me if I determined to desert. Then I went to order a cab, but thought at the last moment I would walk on to a telegraph office beyond the cab office. I turned back soon after I had passed the office and ordered the cab. This settled it, I thought. I returned home, packed, wrote to J, had lunch and half communicated my state of mind to Z without letting her see how near I had come to fulfilling it. Then I read her some Bertrand Russell, and shocked her sentiments a good deal by what I said. I departed in a state of cynical wrath against myself and the world in general, who would understand so little of what I meant. At Waterloo I met E, who had been sent to Woolwich in mistake for W. Seeing him so encouraged me that I forgot my woes for a bit. As we drew near W, horror of rejoining the army was making me very miserable. Moreover, I had been reading B.R. in the train, and was encouraged to believe that, as I put it to myself, I might yet quite succeed in keeping my mind and spirits straight, even if I could not induce myself to acknowledge it among my enemies and those who would be indifferent to me. I said to E., that I had come to think so differently now that I would not rejoin the army were the war to begin, as it were, to-morrow, and that if I had the pluck I would desert now. 
I said I was under so many delusions when I joined at first. Most of these had faded, especially religious ones. I had seen how utterly wide of truth most of mankind, even accredited professors, etc., were in this matter, and thus was quite prepared to find them wrong about war in general, and this war in particular. I found them fully as wrong as I expected, and was only anxious to dissociate myself from them in thought, if I daren't in action. E. rather sniffed at the idea, said that we could not have done anything different at the time, and that we would do the same again under like circumstances, that having discovered new truth made or would make any difference to his actions, he denied, but I feel that I would not do the same thing again. On Change, A Free Man's Worship Thursday, August 24th, 1916 It is at least possible, owing to the wild caprice of mood and emotion, which yet do seem to advance definitely on some line or other, do not, I mean, throw down one set of values simply to rebuild it later, but build quite anew on what they ruin. It seems possible, having regard to this, that my whole outlook on life will change so utterly again that I shall barely know myself. So deep have the changes in me been recently through Christianity, theism, paganism, to atheism and pessimism, and so rapidly have they consummated themselves that I seemed till only a few weeks ago an entirely new being. And even now I think those changes were greater and more lasting than any I have ever undergone until now. But yet I see them now as still part of a system. They too share the general flame-like character of man's life, in that, though their blaze was high and searing, yet they pass, and the continuous fire of my existence goes on under different aspects. I have not been by them utterly consumed, still it is true Pantare, and here too will come a change, a great change perhaps. I had regarded them as something too utterly final. I was wrong. The tendency to seek for finality, to look for some resting place in development, some road offering shelter more permanent than nightly inns, is a delusion and not to be acquiesced in. Still the change goes on, and still I travel forward. To hate or laugh cynically at religion and religious feeling in older men, poets or philosophers, is to lose sight of this truth. They are plainly men of wisdom and sensibility at least as acute as our own. They have had, too, so much more time to grow and experience. Therefore we should look carefully and interestedly at what they have to tell us of the feelings of the soul in its mid-journey and in the days when it knows the end of the road is really at hand. For as we are, they were once, and we may be what they are. But we do not do well to extend this consideration to all. Indeed we should refuse it to most men. 
Only poets and philosophers may demand it from us, not fools or the mass of mankind. And yet I think, as I write, of Bertrand Russell, who, in his essay, A Free Man's Worship, sets out from the belief that I hold now to construct a noble and bold religion which is so compelling in its core and so honest in its facing of facts that it seems possible to acquiesce in it. It is very interesting trying to forecast one's own development. The open mind, the sensitive heart, these are what we must keep exposed to experience for it to print on them what it may. I never would have thought to read there what is written there now. Some months' perusal of it accustoms me to the legend, and I wonder what the next announcement will be. Highgate, noon, Monday, August 21st, 1916 Dearest lad, I go down in an hour to the pit again, less willingly, more hating it than ever. What I have thought and read lately and from being with you makes me doubt very much if I do well to go. This is the bitterest part of it. I do ill to go. I ought to fight no more. But death, I suppose, is the penalty, and public opinion and possible misunderstanding. You see how complicated it gets. Thoughts were given us to conceal our passions from ourselves. Were I to follow mine, my passions, I would not be here. But now is the native hue of resolution sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought. I am almost certain I do wrong to go on, not quite certain. And anyhow, I question if I am of martyr stuff. Write soon. A.G.W. Officers and the War Monday, September 11th, 1916 I must try and make out what the officers among whom I move think of this war. Its causes, its probable effects, its merits and demerits, and its remedies when it is over. One sees, of course, that all the society in which one may at any moment find oneself is very fluid, and one doesn't like to hazard opinions, and they are not easily elicited. I have mentioned the feeling against conscientious objectors, even in the minds of sentimental and religious people. Even R. speaks sneeringly of Bertrand Russell. No one is willing to revise his ideas or make clear to himself his motives in joining the war. Even if anybody feels regret for having enlisted, he does not like to admit it to himself. Why should he? Every man, woman and child is taught to regard him as a hero. If he has become convinced of wrong action, it lands him in an awkward position which he had much better not face. So everything tends to discourage him from active thinking on this important, and in the most literal sense, 
vital question. They are, as one knows, many of them worthy and unselfish men, not void of intelligence in trivial matters, and ready to carry through this unpleasant business to the end, with spirits as high as they can keep them, and as much attention to their men as the routine and disciplinary conscience of their colonel will permit. They are not often aggressive or offensively military. This is the dismal part of it. That these men, almost the best value in the ordinary upper class that we have, should allow themselves to suppose that all this is somehow necessary and inevitable, that they should give so much labour and time to the killing of others, though to the plain appeals of poverty and inefficiency in government, as well national as international, they are so absolutely heedless. How is it that as much blood and money cannot be poured out when it is a question of saving and helping mankind rather than of slaying them? I suppose it is the suddenness and the threat of unusually terrible destruction when war comes that makes men respond so willingly to this singularly uninspiring appeal when they will not listen to the socialist. Why go on? Sunday, September 24th, 1916 A tent I am very unhappy. I wish to make clear to myself why, and to thrash out what my desires really tend to. I am unhappier than I ever was last year, and this not only because I have been separated from my friends, or because I am simply more tired of the war. It is because my whole outlook towards the thing has altered. I endured what I did endure last year patiently believing I was doing a right and reasonable thing. I had not thought out the position of the pacifist and the conscientious objector. I was always sympathetic to these people, but never considered whether my place ought not to have been rather among them than where I actually was. Then I came back to England, feeling rather like the noble crusader or explorer who has given up much for his friend, but who is not going to be sentimental or overbearing about it, though he regards himself as somehow different from and above those who have not endured as he has done. I have described how I modified this feeling after much company with J. It would certainly be much pleasanter if I could regard myself still in this rather sublime light as the man who goes into the pit for his friends but I cannot do so, for I am beginning to think that I never ought to have gone into it at all. This war is trivial for all its vastness, says B. Russell, and so I feel. I am being pained, bored and maddened, and to what end? It is the uselessness of it that annoys me. I had once regarded it as inevitable, now I don't believe it was, and had I been in full possession of my reasoning powers when the war began, I would never have joined the army. To have taken a stand against the whole thing, against the very conception of force, even when employed against force, 
would have really been my happier and truer course. The war so filled up my perspective at first that I could not see anything close because of it. Most people are still like that. To find a growing body of men who can really be au-dessus de la mêlée, who can comprehend and condemn it, who can live in the world beside the war and yet not in it, is extremely encouraging to anyone who can acclaim himself of their brotherhood. Spiritually, I am of it, but I am prevented from being among them. I am a creature caught in a net. Most men fight, if not happily, at any rate patiently, sure of the necessity and usefulness of their work. So did I, once. Now, it all looks to me so absurd and brutal that I can only force myself to continue in a kind of dream state. I hypnotize myself to undergo it. What good, what happiness can be produced by some of the scenes I have had to witness in the last few days? Even granting it was necessary to resist Germany by arms at the beginning, and this I have yet most carefully to examine, why go on? Can no peace be concluded? Is it not known to both armies that each is utterly weary and heartsick? Of course it is. Then why, in God's name, go on? It must be unreasonable to continue. The victorious or seemingly victorious side ought to offer peace. No peace can be worse than this bloody stupidity. The maddening thing is the sight of men of fairly good will accepting it all as necessary. This angers me that men must go on. Why? Who wants to? Moreover, I feel quite clearly that I ought to have stood aside. It is these men who stand aside, these philosophers and the so-called conscientious objectors, who are the living force of the future. They are full of the light that must come sooner or later. They are sneered at now, but their position is firm. If all mankind were like them, there would not have been war. Duty to country and king and civilization. Nonsense! For none of these is a man to be forced to leave his humanity on one side and make a passionate, destroying beast of himself. I am a man before I am anything else and all that is human in me revolts. I would fain stand beside these men I admire, whose cause is the highest part of human nature, calm reason and kindliness. The argument drawn from the sufferings of the men in the trenches, from the almost universal sacrifices to duty, are not valid against this. Endurance is hard, but not meritorious simply because it is endurance. We are confronted with two sets of martyrs here, those of the trenches and those of the tribunal and the civil prison, and not by any means are the former necessarily in the right. 
and it is not even as if the army men were content simply to do their dirty work. They sneer at the pacifists. They encourage the sentiments of the spectator and such poisonous papers, or at any rate they are profoundly indifferent to the cause of internationalism. They are ready to fight and beat the Bosch, as they will call him, and there is the end. Yes, there was but one way for me, and I have seen it only when it was too late to pursue it. Even be the thing as necessary as you like, be the constitution of this world really so foul and hellish that force must be met by force, yet I should have stood aside. No brutality should have led me into it. Had I stood apart, I should have stood on firm, logical ground. Where I was, truth would have been, as it is among my friends now. To defy the whole system, to refuse to be an instrument of it, this I should have done. Coming home to London on leave. Wednesday, September 6th, 1916. I have succeeded in getting leave, and right now in the back garden of M's house at Beckenham. I arrived last night about nine, very short of money, having only about three shillings to travel up from W to town, luckily with a ticket. We reached London about seven. The sun was setting as I crossed Waterloo Bridge, a red bubble behind the Houses of Parliament. But in Waterloo Station the sunlight had still been intense, though of that thick, almost palpable radiance that low sunbeams have from autumn suns seen through glass. After the journey, almost the vividest happiness is over. The ever-nearing imminence of London, the outlying commons dotted with children's figures playing. One, I remember standing up amid a bush of dark green gorse, wearing a little red, coral-like cap. You approach the wilderness of roofs, see the tall buildings so familiar to you far away over them. The train winds and twists bumpily over points and switches. You lean out of the window and look up the long vertebrate rod of carriages, watch them turn and tail round the curves. You pass Battersea and Vauxhall, more and more widths of line, shunting engines, pointsmen, forests of signals. The signal boxes perched right up above the line. The arch of the great station opens before you, dark and gloomy beneath the dirty glass. The ends of the platforms stretch forth to meet you. You wonder which it will be, this side, this side. In you glide past the long line of porters and waiting friends. You alight. Everyone is welcomed. You make your way out. London. London. I think the first piece of conscious unhappiness comes when you realise how alone you are. You have returned to London full of an immense energy and desire towards happiness. You want companionship in it. At camp, when you have been happy, you have been happy by being with friends, mainly. 
by taking joy from them, and by the assurance that you are returning it to them again. Here in London you want the same kind of thing, but in different terms. In camp the happiness for both is the intenser, because each realises that only with and from the other can he satisfy his wants. With E alone, for instance, could I be happy, and I knew it was so for him. Naturally I turned to E, and as naturally was I satisfied. Here, to whom shall I turn? Custom demands I shall turn to my family. Affection demands no less that I shall turn to my friends, the friends who have always been good to me and with whom life is good. There is a well-experienced conflict in the first place. But over and above these two desires is a third. Perhaps I should say that the third desire is really the only one, fulfilling itself inadequately in each of the two better identified wishes. This third desire, then, I can hardly analyse it. Monday, September 11th, 1916 I continue, really, the line of thought from what I have written above. What has come to me recently is the supreme value of human love. I have never loved my friends so much, nor rejoiced so deeply in the assurance of their love for me, as I have done during the last few weeks before coming out here. It has seemed the most blessed thing in the world to have J and M, M and M, A and H, to love me, and to feel they know how I love them. The growing joy of this is coming to compensate me for all I lost when any vague notion of eternal and supernatural benevolence had to be abandoned. It is from man we must seek our greatest happiness. Man the lover. It is plain from this that love gains a zest, is prized more highly when it is given to and taken from one whom we have chosen for ourselves, or who has chosen us. The relation of friendship becomes, in fact, more precious when it is open to one to accept or reject communion with another soul and acceptance so amply justifies itself. Going a step further from this, it is evident that the pleasure of gaining affection from new sources, and pouring oneself out in new affections, must be one of the greatest pleasures in life, perhaps greater than the constant renewal of old loves, though this with J is priceless in value. It is this great tide of love surging up in one that prompts the feeling of loneliness when the narrow love possible in camp is widened out. This is where the third desire I spoke of enters. Love, it is felt, ought now to be given, as it were, absolutely anew. Surveying mankind, one wants to choose out some recipient for true love. End of section three.